Today, I want to talk about the hottest show on Netflix. It's called Made. It's the story of a woman who leaves her abusive husband to bring herself and her beautiful daughter, Maddie, to safety. It's a true story based on Stephanie Land's powerful memoir of the same name. Safety isn't exactly what she finds. They go hungry. They live in their car when they have one. They rely on her mother, who lives in a near-constant state of mania. Alex and Maddie turn to social services and nonprofits for help, and yep, this is part of why I want to talk about MADE on my podcast for nonprofit leaders. How'd that go for them? Did the support services we provide those in need actually work? Did we help Alex get back on her feet? There are other reasons to talk about this, too. Not the most important reason, but I've been talking about this show since I saw it, and I figured I should toss a microphone in front of myself and grab a colleague and record a conversation that I hope you will find interesting. There are so many layers to this onion, and I was feeling compelled to create an episode that felt a bit like a glimpse into a book club. But there are other reasons. The nonprofit model we rely on is deeply flawed. Largely white, largely male boards provide governance to our organizations that often and regularly serve people who look nothing like those board members. Lived experience is so painfully absent from the funding and leadership of our organizations. Maid tells the story of a young white woman who relies on strong women of color for support. Her story illustrates that because she is white, her path out is easier. There's one other reason, and I hope this will be a huge takeaway for everyone listening. Pop culture and media shape attitudes and opinions, and don't I know it. This is the work of GLAD, the organization I led for a decade. The story of LGBT lives told accurately and fairly through the media, those change hearts and minds. I've seen it firsthand. We know it in our hearts, and research tells us so. So how do we use media to impact how folks see nonprofits, nonprofit leaders. How do we use popular shows like Made to raise awareness for the work we do? We can, we should, and we need to. It's a key strategy to letting the world know about the part of the world you work every day to repair. Stay with me, and at the end, I'm going to give you some advice, practical advice, about how to use TV and film as a hook to build awareness for your cause, your organization, and to build your own leadership. Greetings and welcome to Nonprofits Are Messy. I'm your host, Joan Gary, founder of the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, where we help smaller nonprofits thrive. I'm also a strategic advisor for executive directors and boards of larger nonprofits. I'm a frequent keynote speaker, a blogger, and an author on all things leadership and management. You can learn more at joangary.com. I think of myself as a woman with a mission to fuel the leadership of the nonprofit sector. My goal with each episode is to dig deep into an issue I know that nonprofit leaders are grappling with by finding just the right person to offer you advice and insights. Today is no exception. Noelani Pearlhunt is the Director of Community and Belonging in the Nonprofit Leadership Lab, an online membership site with content and a community for board and staff leaders of small nonprofits. She brings to this work over two decades of work in the nonprofit and political sectors. Her work in development, public relations, board management, advocacy, and her certification as a consultant in diversity, equity, and inclusion provide our members with an unparalleled level of expertise and a real sense of belonging. Her previous nonprofit work includes tenures as an executive director, a board leader, a development director, and an executive coach. She is most proud of her work during her tenure as the first woman of color to serve as the president of the Santa Clara School Board. She spearheaded projects that focused on equity in education. 
During her tenure, graduation rates increased. New programs were created that won state and national recognition. The school board also worked to secure funding for college placement exams to ensure access for all. For this work, she was spotlighted in the Silicon Valley Business Journal as a one of 40 leaders under 40. Noelani has a bachelor's in psychology from Santa Clara University, and she lives with her partner, Albert Hernandez, and their blended family, her daughter, and her three bonus children in San Jose, California. You know, I find that sometimes you find the ideal guest right in your own backyard or on your very own team. Hi, Noelani. Hey, Joan Gary. How are you today? Uh, I am good. I'm good. This is a fun um, podcast. It is, like I said, I wanted it to feel a little bit like a book club with a lesson at the end. So I thought I would start with a quick primer on what media advocacy really is. And it's what our work was all about at GLAD. Media images and stories shape how we see the world and the people in it. Thanks to advocates across a spectrum of minorities, Images are fairer and more accurate, but the work is ongoing. Color of Change, an online civil rights organization, is deep into media advocacy as it looks at criminal stereotypes. GLAAD, for example, began in 1985 because what people thought they knew about gay people was that we were diseased, disordered, mentally ill, and dying of a mysterious disease that we had brought on ourselves. I'm not going to pretend to have done an extensive look at how TV and film portray nonprofit leaders, but <laughs> maybe I should. In the meantime, let's talk about MADE. Noelani, talk to me a little bit about what someone who watched MADE would have learned about the nonprofit and social services sectors and the people who work there. You know, it was really interesting. I just had this conversation. We were out on a walk, Albert and I, and we were talking about the state of nonprofits. And we were talking about if there was always going to be a need for nonprofits. And I thought back to watching Made, And, you know, like most people during the pandemic, I binge watched it literally in two days and thought about the huge gap that these nonprofit and social sector nonprofits focus on. And that it was the biggest takeaway for me. It's that nonprofit leaders, especially in the social services sector, work to their bone and sometimes play self-care to the side to make sure that they are serving and helping other people. And then I thought back to the ACLU and the Loving versus Virginia case. I thought about the Brown versus the Board of Education and the NAACP and Thurgood Marshall, the Innocence Project, the work that you did at GLAD. And all the work that when these social movements have happened have all been done by nonprofits. Right. All of them. (laughs) Yeah, it's absolutely true. And the visibility of news media stories about the Loving case or, Mm -hmm. um, I mean, you live in the Bay Area and probably remember, as I do, I was at GLAAD when Gavin Newsom, then mayor of San Francisco, now governor, started to just issue marriage licenses. (laughs) And those images on national television of loving people who wanted to have to make the same kind of personal commitment to one another um, that straight people do, they stick with you. They're really, really powerful. And I do think that at the heart of MADE is not necessarily what other people might see is at the heart of MADE, but you and I see it clear as day (laughs) that the centrality of the social services person, the centrality of the woman who who runs the DV shelter, 
Um, these people are central to her ability to find housing, right, mm-hmm. and to be safe, and that it's noble work. It absolutely is. And, you know, nonprofits, and what I saw in that is they make us human, right? They address the shame and the guilt, and they push that aside. And nonprofits serve with no judgment. And that's what we saw with every step of the way that Alex was faced with. She was humanized instantly. Yes. Let's talk about the first person that she encounters. So she leaves her abusive husband and she and Maddie find their way to a social service agency that she has identified that's going to provide, that hopefully will provide her with housing. Talk to me about what you learned about that woman and her commitment, right? This was a, uh, also a, a woman of color, actually, I think. Yeah, what'd you learn about her? You know, I learned what a lot of a lot of nonprofits or people in those positions do is they they forget about the rules yes. of the way things are done, and they literally make up their own rules in order to get them through or people through people who need that help through. You know, snap. There were seven different agencies, if I remember, that Alex had to go through: SNAP benefits, housing, the TBRA what was it, WIC, all of those things that she was trying to get through in order to provide a stable home environment and to be able to be safe with her and Maddie. And she, I remember, I think it was this part where the the social worker was talking and then all of a sudden the words just changed to blah, 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 you know, or whatever they were, service, service, service. And Alex was totally overwhelmed yep. and didn't know what to do. And the social worker saw that in her face and she took a step back and said, okay, let me help you out. This is what we're going to do. And she pushed all of the roles aside and then just started drilling through to figure out how to get her in a space that made sense. Well, and the people who go above and beyond know the woman who runs Value Maids, right? Yes. Right. They, does, they, yes, right. Yeah. Right. You go above and beyond and you say, okay, you need to have a, you, you need to have a pay stub. How are we going to get you a pay stub? Right. And then she says, here, call this woman at value maids. She can get you work. Right. The people who go above and beyond know the people at value maids. Now it wasn't an ideal job and the person at value maids was tough. But Mm -hmm. it was the first step out. It was. You know, and I was thinking about, I was like, man, that person at Value Maids was tough. But then I thought about it. She's a woman of color. So there's no error for mistakes. So if things don't get done right, it doesn't matter who's doing them. It's that person who's leading Value Maids that gets called accountable. Yeah, which is very interesting. Very, very interesting. (laughs) Let's move on to let's move on to Denise. So Denise is a powerful character in this series, right? And I was so you know I don't know if she's the executive director. I don't know if she's the program director of that facility. But let's talk a little bit about the importance of lived experience. We don't learn until nearly the end of the series that Denise is also a DV survivor, right? And I, and I just, I, I wonder, as you watched the series, would that have been something that you would have, that, that you think that audiences would have found valuable to know 
earlier on? Did you actually just assume she was a DV survivor? Like, I was just sort of curious about what did you look, what did you assume about Denise when you met her? You know, I think they let it out at just the right time. One of the things when you're dealing with trauma or abuse or any of these things is what the leaders in those positions learn is it's not about their story. It's about the person's story who's coming to them. So if Denise would have said as soon as she got there, oh, you know, you know what she was calling her sweetheart, sweetheart, or honey, I'm a, I'm a DV survivor too. It would have taken away from the experience that Alex needed to experience going through in order to get to that next step. And I had a feeling that she had experience. I didn't know what kind of experience either, you know, um, experience um, having trouble maybe getting housing or getting a great job or whatever it was. But what I really liked, well, not but, and what I really liked was the way that we discovered that she was a DV survivor, that she shared such a beautiful written poem about her experience. And we don't know the details of it at all, but it was such a beautiful experience. I might've shed a tear a little bit when she read it. Maybe, um, maybe. <laughs> AT&T commercials get you too, don't they? <laughs> well, yeah. And then our favorite TV show does too. <laughs> yeah. That would be, this is us. Maybe we'll have to do, maybe we'll have to do another podcast about this is us and see if we can get through without crying. Do you think that, that a show like uh, made makes Denise's job seem, wow, what a, what an incredible opportunity it is to have a job like that. Like, she's really saving women. Do you think it sort of, sort of paints a brush over how hard Denise's job is? Like, I, 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 you're, you've been an executive director. I have. I've not done direct service. I, I am not. I do not have lived experience in this area. But I just, I wonder... For those people who are listening, you know, who watched this show, like, what would you imagine Denise's work life is like? You know, I, I think for people who have, and, and we have that, you had posted in the lab a question about this, and we saw the difference between those who have the lived experience of doing direct services. What they said was it was heavy, like there, that her work life is heavy. When I first saw Alex talk to Denise, I thought, wow, what an amazing first person for Alex to meet. But I also thought, oh my gosh, what a heavy job Denise has. It's heavy. Like how is she ta- I started to worry about her. How is she taking <laughs> care of herself? Is she does she have time for self-care? Do we need to add her to the lab? These are all the things that I was thinking. And I think that for those who have experienced either this directly or who are doing this work, which you know is God's work, nonprofit ED staff, volunteers who are doing work, direct services, they probably had that same feeling of heaviness. Whereas if it was someone who didn't, hadn't experienced this, they probably thought, oh, what a lovely, ex- oh, that's so lovely that she's doing that work. So it's really dependent, I think, on your lived experience. And that lived experience gave Denise the empathy to understand and what to do and what not to do as Alex was entering that shelter. And just thinking, you know, thinking the heaviness that comes with seeing someone return or seeing someone leave and go back 
as I, I don't remember the character, I think her name was Danielle, who goes back to the situation that she that she came from and how often that happens. And it really speaks to the importance of lived experience in these roles, doesn't it? So, I, you know, we talk about this a lot when we do work with clients in the nonprofit leadership lab about the critical nature of lived experience on your boards and in your staff. And we'll work our way into this conversation, but a board without li- a board that has no sense of lived experience of how just how difficult this work is and how difficult Denise's job is, it's unfathomable that they could provide the kind of governance, oversight, and moral support that the people on the ground deserve and demand. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I thought of um, is a lot of the work that has been done recently when it comes to like DEI work or belonging or community work has been really focused on the board. And so the board has that extra layer of empathy to understand what those that the organization is serving is going through. Because if you don't have the lived experience, you just don't have it. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the empathy to be able to see or feel those things that they might be going through and to be there with a person either your executive director or if you volunteer, a person who's going through it in that moment. So, you know, it's, it's hard, but we're, we're stuck in that. Where do we bring board members who can bring experience and money and all those things that a nonprofit needs and also balance that out with, you know, the life experience, those two, two things are essential and they're the yin and the yang that make that perfect board for you. Right. And they're not mutually exclusive either. Right. And the lived experience can be direct. It can also be indirect. Right. So, you know, I have a, you know, fill in the blank. You know, I have a cousin. I have a sister. I have, you know, a so-and-so who had this kind of experience. And because of that, I am deeply committed to. Right. So Mm -hmm. it can, I think that a lot of times people actually forget the pond they swim in and that they may in fact have lived experience when they in fact don't. Let's talk a little bit about the racial issues that MAID brings to life. There's been a lot written about the fact that the main character is white. Now, when I started to binge watch this show, I did not know it was based on a memoir. And I found myself getting edgy as I was watching it, right? I was like, oh, no, 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 no. People that, right, I thought to myself, this isn't the, this isn't the story. If this is the story, this isn't the story, right? I thought to myself, <laughs> oh, my goodness, people are going to be enraged that the main character is not a woman of color. Clearly, disproportionately, people, women of color, find themselves in these situations as value maids. The the fact that it is a memoir calmed me down. But then I had this other thought, Noelani. I thought, do you think Netflix acquires the rights to maid if the memoir is authored by a woman of color. I'm actually thinking back to a conversation you and I had about American Dirt, the novel that was written by a white woman 
right, about uh, about a woman of color and her son who attempt to cross the border into the United States to be safe, to stay alive. I find myself wondering, so I was curious what you thought. Would this memoir have made the bestseller list if our protagonist was a woman of color? Would Netflix have licensed the right for it if the protagonist was a woman of color? And I just, I wonder, I, I'm thinking you have some thoughts about that. You know, I think it would have been dependent on when they bought the rights to it. If they bought the rights before the pandemic and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Aubrey, I don't think they would have bought the rights to it. Now, I think they would have bought the rights to it. And, you know, it calls to me into question, not only like, why is there less want to see people like that who are going through their own struggles or those stories? You know, another question that I thought of was, what if this was like a single dad who was in an abusive relationship, either a same sex relationship or an opposite sex relationship who was going through the same thing? Would we have that same want to binge watch this uh, and a a person of color or a woman of color going through this? You know, it's hard to know right now we're in this movement and this moment where this matters to us as a country, as a human, as a society, but people get complacent and they get comfortable. And sometimes they forget about what's going on out in the world. And, you know, one of the things is people of color can't forget that because, you know, as I wake up in the morning, I don't see a, a, a white woman. I see a woman of color. And, and I know that that means that I have to look at it in a different way. I have to look at my life in a different way. So my hope is, so the hope is that yes, they would have bought it. So that's my hope. They're, they're a pretty liberal (laughs) uh, organization. So my hope is that they would. And Alex gets saved, right? Alex gets a path out. And would you agree that her path out is advanced by her white privilege. I mean, right by her, you know, you could say she lived on a boat and she lived in her car and what kind of privilege is that? But does her whiteness not actually save her? Absolutely. I think that, you know, bias or unbiased, we have our own thoughts when it comes to these things. And what Alex was given was the benefit of the doubt time after time. And I would even go as far to say that her gender and her, her, um, you know, ethnicity gave her that. And it's not her fault. She was born into that, that life. And, you know, what we see, what I love to see is when there's women like Denise who lift up other people into those leadership positions. And it's not that crowd mentality that happens um, sometimes with people of color as they get through where they're pulling other people down as they're getting through. I like to see that, you know, lifting up and Alex or Stephanie sharing her story helps because it brings to light things that the seven, like seven types of government aid with seven different forms is absurd. Right. <laughs> it's absurd. Right. Regardless, right. Regardless of, regardless of your race or ethnicity. Right. 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 Do you remember, I mean, to put you on the spot, uh, Alex gets the benefit of the doubt because she's white. Do you remember an instance when she gets the benefit of the doubt? 
Oh yeah. I remember when she was so hungry, right? She wanted to make sure that Maddie ate and she hadn't had any food. It was her first day at value maids. She goes to Regina's house. She's cleaning the house and passes out. And I think Regina's nursery or what, what they are hoping can, will be their nursery. And Regina comes in and wakes her up and offers, you know, asks her if she's okay, offers her a power bar and, you know, maybe an electrolyte drink is what I think. And, (laughs) (laughs) and says, okay, you know, and listens to her talk and then says, okay, great. You know, there's still stuff that needs to be done. And I thought, wow, if that would have been the owner, the Latina owner or an African-American or black woman or a Muslim woman and Regina was white, they would have kicked her out. Yeah. Gone. Called the cops even. No questions asked. And is what saved Alex quicker than most. So uh, another example that comes to my mind, she's looking for an apartment. Mm-hmm. Right. She's looking for an apartment and she gets door after door slammed in her face until she meets the lesbian couple who live in the mm-hmm. idyllic in the idyllic <laughs> uh, house that anyone would give their eye teeth to live in. Right. I'm not so sure that lesbian couple cuts a deal with a woman of color to rent their beautiful apartment. Right. Uh, do, do you think I mean, you know, she barters gardening tips Right. Well, she's going to bar. She's going to she's going to garden to help offset the 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 uh, the rent. But not so sure that if she's not an attractive young white woman, that that they respond to her the same way. You know, and where I had to pause it, because I when I get frustrated with privilege and the thought of privilege in shows, I'll pause and like take a little walk around our living room and then come back was when and I can't remember Alex's um, boyfriend's name. Uh, Just Nate, I think Nate. When so when Nate passes out in the lesbian couple's home, and oh no no it wasn't Nate no no Nate on, Nate is the Nate is the uh, the oh, guy the who has a crush on her that gives yes. her a car uh, right. right. So the boyfriend who her abusive boyfriend passes out inside their house, and the lesbian couple knocks on her door and says, "Hey, there's an issue here." I was like, if if that was a person of color, cops, like I don't, I, and so I paused, took a lap around our living room, went up and down the stairs and then went back to watch it because I was like, okay, this is, you know, this is her story. I can't take away from that. But if it was a person of color, cops immediately. Yeah. Very, very interesting. Let's go back for a minute. We were talk- We talked a little bit about Regina. We talked about Denise. We talked about the social service person. We talked about the person who ran Value Maids. When you're looking at this through a bit of a DEI lens, it's very interesting to think about the fact that the most prominent, helpful characters set aside Nate, the, you know, the, the guy who gives her the car, who clearly wants something in return, right? That some, that some of the strongest characters were Black women. And from a DEI perspective, how did that land for you? I think, well, for me, I felt really good about it. So often um, women, people of color are are not put in those positions of power or of people to look up to even. They are viewed as 
you know, less than. And so that those people of color were able to give her the community and the feeling to lift her up was really a look at a couple of things. It was a look at what our communities are like. Our communities are, let's work together as a village to make sure that our entire community gets lifted up. So that was a part of the culture that was given, but it also like, it was to me a really special thing. You know, I think of really briefly of when Chadwick Boswick or Chad Boswick. Uh, Chadwick Boseman. Thank you. See, I'm horrible with names. You'll learn that. (laughs) So Chadwick Boseman, when he passed away after Black Panther and the emotional attachment that people had to that, and the way that it affected affected them in a way that was, I don't think we had ever seen before. Right, and that was as uh, because he's an African American man, a person of color who is playing a Black Panther. I mean, he's playing a superhero. He's playing a superhero where there is community. He's bringing everyone together. He is bringing the entire Avengers team together. Maybe he's not, you know, Tony Stark or Captain America. But he is one of the really important characters that brings everyone together. And we saw how that affected the community. We saw how that affected people of color and the BIPOC community. And that's the way that I felt. I felt seen. Yeah, that's very, it's very interesting. And I do believe that it provided, a balance is not exactly the word I'm looking for, to the you know, the notion that a, that a white woman who is going to be saved because of her whiteness, she has access to education, she's going to get a scholarship, right? Those things are offset by the strength of the African-American attorney who goes to bat for her, by Regina, right? There's, there are some really strong, caring Black characters in this in this series that add real value to the sort of the story and the sort of the the complexity of who people are and how they show up. Right. So I promised a lesson on media advocacy and I'm going to start it and jump in where you feel so inclined, Noelani, but so here goes. Everybody is talking about this show. Tons of articles are being written about it. I want you as a nonprofit leader to think about the conversation we have just had ever so briefly, right? And think about how you can jump on that bandwagon. So what are the themes, Noelani, that are covered in MADE? It's not just domestic violence. What other themes crop up that the nonprofit sector deals with? You know, I think mental health crops up. With his substance abuse disorder, you have social services, housing, food insecurities that pop up, wage equity that pops up, gosh, economic um, issues that pop up, that you see all of these nonprofits that are working day in and day out 24-7 on being brought out in all these different ways. You see... um, I was really thinking about that the other side of the tracks because of the economic disparity from one side to the other, where Alex lived in the trailer and um, where, you know, Regina lived on this island and this beautiful home. 
So there's those issues. There's racial issues that are going on. There's so many things. Just this one. One series. One series. (laughs) Good. Your list was longer than mine even. So I want you to think about this if you're listening. If your organization deals with any of them, made is a big fat hook. A big fat hook. So let me put it in this context. I remember long ago, I was talking to Malcolm Gladwell, who wrote The Tipping Point. And I picked up the phone one day and I just called him. I had no idea he'd actually take my call, and he did. And I said, you know, I love The Tipping Point. And, you know, I know that you can change hearts and minds about, like, hush puppies and things like that. And all of a sudden they can be the hottest, newest shoe. But how do you do that with like LGBT people and how people think of them? How do you rebrand? And what he said to me was was really interesting. He said, well, no social movement is ever going to have enough money to market the Nike swoosh. You're never going to have it right? You can't build your own platform because you're going to be under-resourced. So you have to actually stand up on the platforms that are already out there and created and use them. Bring your bullhorn and stand on the platform that has been created. And here you have a series that has just surpassed The Queen's Gambit as the most popular series on Netflix. That's a platform. Get your bullhorn and go stand on it. Right? What do I mean by that? Well, I could mean a blog post. I could mean an op-ed. And you're going to say to me, I don't have time to write, and I'm going to say you don't have time not to. Right? Because... This is how you can get visibility for your cause, for your own organization. You can educate people about why this issue matters, and you can use a Netflix series to do it. Other examples. So I came up with some. Maybe you also have some too, Noelani, but okay. How about Queen's Gambit? Did you watch Queen's Gambit, Noelani? You know, I haven't. <laughs> okay. I know. So but I have I have started watching Shit's Creek. So there's the other another Okay, one so so <laughs> let's take so this is not a this is not vacuous. I really need you to hear me about this, right? Major motion pictures, television shows that are popular and are watched by the masses, the people whose whose hearts and minds you want to change, this go to go to the ponds they're fishing in right? The Queen's Gambit, what's it about? It's about a woman who bounces around through foster care, right? Right? Who ages out of foster care. Of course it's about, of course it's about chess. Of course it's about how brilliant she is. But if you don't, you, if, if you don't take advantage of what was that experience like, she became an addict, Right? She becomes, right? Think about all of these societal ills that are resident in some of the most popular television shows and films that are out there and hook onto them. Think about what is it you want to say, 
right? Watch what have the conversation that Noelani and I had about made. Have it about Queen's Gambit. If you if you work in foster care, right? If you work in in the world of addiction and recovery, one of the hottest shows on Hulu right now is Dope Sick with Michael Keaton. There's a lot to say. There's a lot to say. And you as a sector expert are the kind of person that people want to hear from. And when there's a hook and it's timely, you are much more likely to get coverage for a piece that you have penned yourself. So Schitt's Creek, you just started to watch Schitt's Creek, Noelani. So Mm -hmm. there's all kinds of things happening there too. Right. You know, and I think of, I think of the things that, you know, that Glad did and Schitt's Creek is on because of Glad. The work that you did during your time there is a direct result of having Schitt's Creek on. And we just watched the episode where David uh, kind of came out right to to stevie to stevie at the front desk right yeah to stevie at the front desk saying you know he drinks both red and white wine in fact he doesn't care what kind of wine it is that he you know loves it all and his dad was talking about how difficult it was and for him and and roland says you know love is love roland roland shit says love is love and it was this profound conversation that ended with Johnny saying, I love you. Right. It doesn't matter. Right. And I think to myself, so having watched all uh, six seasons and cried when it was over, Schitt's Creek is a special place, right? It is an aspirational land where everyone is accepted for who they are. Mm-hmm. How many of you who are listening today advocate for the disenfranchised minorities, for people who are labeled as other in some way, who don't get a fair shake? They'd all get a fair shake in Schitt's Creek, right? And, and I, look, I'm a little crass here about this. Organic search traffic on MADE and Schitt's Creek and Dope Sick right? You write a piece about one of those things, people are going to find you, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So this is what Malcolm Gladwell was talking about. You're not going to be able to, you may not have the funds to market the organization, but if you can actually hook onto something that is, has high organic search traffic, you're going to get a lot of visibility and you're going to give a lot more people the opportunity to be educated about your issues and feel a sense of how can I get more involved, right? So I could go, you know, I could go on and on. I could pick out a a hundred different shows, movies, and I could find some kind of societal issue that one of you is grappling with. And, And you could write about how unfairly your community has been portrayed, right? You could write about... I want to live in a world like Schitt's Creek. <laughs> There's any number of places you can go. But this, the reason I wanted to do this particular podcast is because 
media presents an opportunity, an opportunity for people to have conversations like the one Noelani and I are having today. And they present an opportunity to you as a nonprofit leader to be able to use what's happening in pop culture, grab onto it, and bridge over to what's important for you to say, what you need people to hear about the way in which you're attempting to repair the world. I'll give you one last example. After I left CLAD, I had always wanted to write something about the movie Juno. Had nothing to do with CLAD, right? Uh, She gives her child up for adoption. That's the choice she makes. And... I found that my that lots of adolescent kids thought this was like the sweetest movie on earth. And they just watch it over and over and over again. And I felt like they were missing something. And so I wanted to write about it, but the movie had been out for a while. But then I found out when it was going to be, at that time, to give you the date, uh, <laughs> released on DVD. <laughs> And I knew that would be a hook. And so I interviewed three people that I knew who had different kinds of situations in which they had a pregnancy they did not anticipate. One was a, a mom whose daughter, right? There, right? One was a, a person who was, whose parents demanded that uh, she give her child up for adoption in college. And I told three different stories. And it became an an op-ed in USA Today, and it would never have been an op-ed. First of all, I mean, it's not my area of expertise. I was just a mom watching Juno with my kid. But I also know a lot about media advocacy. And the other thing I just would say is that it was hooked to the DVD release of Juno, and they picked it up in a hot second. And that's what you have the opportunity to do. So, Noelani, any any observations on this or sort of last thoughts about it? You know, I think that you hit, you know, the, the nail on the head there, that you have to take every opportunity that you have when you're in a small nonprofit and budget's tight. And, you know, this is a perfect opportunity to use these types of shows or various things that are happening in the news as your your pathway to getting on those search engines and more people knowing about you. Yeah. So the next time you're binge watching something and you're just like totally caught up in it and you're watching it to act (laughs) as some kind of self-care to get away from your day job, um, maybe put your day job glasses on and see if there is by any chance something happening in that piece of media that could be a hook for you to make a broader statement and reach a broader audience about the issues that that you are tackling every single day. So that's our little book club, uh, a little discussion of DEI and very actionable piece of advice about how you might consume pop culture and how, how you might think about using it as a platform to get your message out. So, Noelani, thanks. This was fun. Thank you for having me, Joan. I appreciate it. All right. I will I will see you around the Nonprofit Leadership Lab. And for those of you who are listening, um, as always, thanks for the hard work you do every day. Take good care. Thanks so much for spending time with me today. I hope you found the conversation valuable as you navigate the messy world of nonprofits. Check out all my other resources at joangary.com. Hope you find them helpful, too. Lastly, 
Thank you for the work you do to repair the world in ways large and small. I'll see you next time.